0: Merry Christmas. I feel really sad right now. Merry Christmas. Christmas. I know some of you guys have been doing Christmas since like November 1st, but it's official. Today is the first day of Advent. Um, Advent is the season of preparation for Jesus' birth for, for Christmas Day. Um, in the church calendar, there are two major seasons of preparation followed by um, a major event where we remember a major event in Jesus' life. Um, Advent is the season of preparation for Easter Day. And I would encourage you a couple things, um, to think, begin thinking now about how you, your family might develop new traditions and habits around Advent that run sort of parallel with, with what the world calls Christmas. Um, and this is in my family a Definitely don't want to discourage things like lights and trees and S- Santa, sort of. <laughs> uh, but at the same time, we do something that's parallel and different, and it and it marks us as distinct. Um, it sets us apart as followers of Jesus. And, and I think th- talking about Advent helps us have Advent and Christmas in a way that we're in the world but not of the world. Um, Uh, we'll talk a little bit about the Jesse tree later. I'd encourage you to do that. Also, there will be some uh, CTK Institute articles you can be looking forward to that will help you think about um, what Advent is and how you and your family can um, practice different things during Advent to set you apart as Christians. Um, So last week we began our study in the book of Luke um, with the preamble to his book. Last week we saw Luke, his his preamble, which is setting up his... uh, his purpose in writing. Um, This week, we start the story in earnest. This week, we actually get into the plot and what's going on. Um, And like every good story, this story begins with the birth of the hero's cousin, where you would obviously start. In our passage today, we have two birth announcements, John and Jesus. So I want us to read the whole text together, but before we do that, I want you to consider that the Bible is like a piece of orchestral music that God has written and God is conducting. In these stories, we see that that there are themes and motifs that have been familiar to us, especially those of us who were here during the Genesis series, that there are these melody lines that in this passage, we will see them building to a kind of climax and not only do we understand this passage because we've been hearing these melody lines and motifs all through, but hearing its climax then informs how we can go back and listen to the lines again, and we can see how they're all brought together in, in Jesus. So with that sort of metaphor in mind, uh, I'm going to read this whole passage today, um, these two birth announcements, Jesus and John. Let's read together. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute, and when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, The Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her, who was called Baron. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, I am the servant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. And so there we see two birth announcements from the same angel, Gabriel. And with that read, I want to work back through the passage more slowly and see what God will teach us. So the last time um, I preached, if you were here, I had three illiterated points. And I, I hope you were here for that because that was an, an anomaly. It'll probably never happen again. I have no three points. Um, so let's move through the text. Luke 1, let's begin with 5 through 7. In the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, but they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. So as we open, Luke is establishing the setting. He says, Herod is the king of Judea. But what we know uh, from the Bible and from history is that the whole region is occupied by Rome. I read a few commentaries on these passages this week, and every commentary said the same thing about Herod, that he was a puppet king, a Roman puppet. And he, his job was partially to appease the Jews, to, to unify the region. One of the things that he did to appease the Jews was to revitalize the temple, so the temple that Jesus would have known was this revitalized and sort of rebuilt temple of Herod's. So the situation for the Jews of the first century was that they have this new shiny temple and they have this sort of understanding with Rome that as long as they sort of play their part as good citizens and subjects, they, as long as they don't sort of disrupt the status quo too much, then they can worship however they want. Um, does this sound familiar? Because it should. It could have been written yesterday. We know that in, in our time and in our place that freedom of worship is protected by law and it often comes down to this sort of idea of like whatever you do in your place of worship is fine, but just like Jesus, we have this problem that Jesus, we're following a man who didn't allow the status quo to continue unquestioned, and we have this problem that for Christians our place of worship is in spirit and truth. Uh, As we live out our whole lives, we will, as disciples of Jesus, encounter conflict with the powers and principalities that undergird and animate our society. And just like today, some of the Jews of that day had made a kind of trade-off, and they made deals with Herod. Um, Herod isn't so bad, they thought. He built us this nice temple. He kind of keeps the peace between us and Rome, and we get to do our nice worship stuff in the temple. So again, if that doesn't sound familiar, it should. So into this time that's much like our own, this couple comes, the Bible says that they were blameless. They were both descendants of Aaron, the priestly lineage. We're also told that they were old and Elizabeth is barren. Now again, I'd call your mind to that orchestra. We're hearing lines and melodies that should sound very familiar to us. An old couple, too old to have children, a barren woman, are being promised a son. Now let's continue. Continue to hear this, orc- this melody uh, as we read. Picking up at verse 8. Now while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. So Zechariah is a priest. He's chosen by lottery, random, to go into the temple to offer um, prayers of forgiveness for the people. Um, A little bit of context helps us understand what's happening here. So there were thousands of priests. At least at one point, there were as many as 18,000 priests. So being chosen by lottery to go into the temple was almost certainly a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. For Zechariah, this is like the height of his career, being chosen to go in and burn incense. And so, this helps us understand what a big deal this was for Zechariah, but also God's decision. It was by lottery, but it wasn't random. God's sovereign will had decided today, Zechariah will come into the temple. I have some business with him. And then we come into the temple. We see that zacharias I just imagine it, he turns to light the incense, and he's like, ah, angel. (laughs) He wasn't expecting that, and he's terrified. We understand why he's terrified. Um, Angels are sometimes painted or sculpted as like, I don't know, sometimes fat little babies, sometimes uh, nice, winged, uh, lovely creatures. Gabriel, uh, we know from the book of Daniel, is a warrior. He's described as a man. So Zacharias turns, and I I imagine Dwayne Johnson. That's just where my mind goes. (laughs) Just like, towering warrior figure before him. He's terrified. And then Gabriel says, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, which is what angels typically say when people are afraid of them. For your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn away and, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Right. I want to stop at this passage and have a little bit of a longer observation. Now, what we see here is that Jesus is fulfilling the law and the prophets, we saw last week in the preamble to the book that Luke is writing a, an orderly account. This doesn't mean, as Michael told us, the, just the facts. In our modern sort of prejudice, it sounds like this is a bad thing, that he's ordering his account to teach us something, not just sort of a uh, blunt, bold fact. But it isn't a bad thing. Luke has ordered the story in such a way to highlight what he wants us to see in Jesus' life and in his teachings. And at least one of the things that he has done to order his gospel uh, in, a way, in a way to emphasize that Jesus is fulfilling all that was written in the Law and the Prophets, that Jesus is filling up what was written about him in the Old Testament. And Luke is explicit about what he's doing. This isn't like some secret hidden thing that we have to decode, and this is why he starts with John and not with Jesus. So I want us to look at the Old Testament... Um, How in English, as our Old Testament is ordered, it ends with the book of Malachi. Now, this isn't necessarily how Luke would have known the end of the Old Testament. The minor prophets would have been on a scroll, and there were different orderings. But in our Bibles, it ends with Malachi. I want us to see what Malachi tells us about the Messiah, the long-awaited King of Israel. Let's begin by looking at Malachi 3, starting in verse 1. He will, sit at, he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver till they pre- present right offerings to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pre- pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near... To you for judgment, I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who op- oppress the hiring in his wages, the widow and the orphan, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. My text different from uh, what's up there? Are we good? Sorry about that. So in this passage, Luke is reminding us that one will come before the Messiah. Another one will prepare the way. He says he will be like a purifying fire. He says he'll be like soap for the nation of Israel. What a wonderful image. Let's look at the very final verses of Malachi. This is chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. So again, in our English Bibles, this is the very last thing in the Old Testament. It says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the land with a curse. And then, 400 years of silence. These are the final words, again, in our our English Old Testament. And then, there's nothing. The people don't know that God is silent. They're just living their lives like they always were. But Luke shows us by picking right up where Malachi left off that all of the history that had been going on. Remember, the temple had been rebuilt. Every other rebuilding of the temple finds a place in the word of God. This temple doesn't. God doesn't make it a part of his history. He picks up with a barren woman having a child. By picking up where Malachi left off, Luke is writing sacred history, showing us that there's been 400 years of silence. And into the silence comes John. And John, as we learn in Malachi, is here to preach repentance. To turn the hearts of the fathers back to their children. The children back to the fathers to prepare the way for Messiah. The King is coming. Now Luke has weaved all sorts of Old Testament references in these passages. Zachariah and Elizabeth are another example. A couple too old to have children. A woman who's been barren her whole life being promised a baby. So the obvious parallel is Abraham and Sarah. But as I was thinking about it, the parallels with Hannah, the mother of Samuel, are more interesting. Hannah was barren, and she felt the disgrace of it, just like Elizabeth. She was so distraught as she went to the temple to pray, Eli thought she was drunk. And Hannah, like Sarah and like Rebecca before her, had husbands with wives who had borne them children, and so she felt the anxiety and the disgrace. And in her case, uh, um, a wife, her husband's wife, would mock her. This theme is all throughout the Old Testament. To see it here in Luke shows us this pattern that God is again working. Again, it's the melody line that's taken up again. But if we continue to think about the parallels to Hannah, we see that when Hannah gives birth to Samuel, Samuel is the prophet who comes before and anoints the king, David. And, by the way, there's another king on the throne, Saul. Saul. Right? When, David, when, when David is anointed king, there is a king already on the throne. And here, um, John is the prophet who comes before David's son, Jesus. John is the one who anoints Jesus and, and sort of signals that he is the Messiah in his baptism. The parallels are really striking. And there is a king who is not God's chosen, on the throne. Herod, who wants to be the king of the Jews, but Jesus is the true king. So the parallels between the Old Testament and these passages are super cool, right? Very interesting. But it's not just trivia. This isn't just sort of neat textual parallels. We, we see in these passages what it means that the Messiah has come. We learn by looking at the Old Testament what it means that Jesus is the Messiah, I want us to see this in, uh, Paul says in Romans 15 that the gospel of Jesus was in keeping with the scripture. And by the scripture, he means the Old Testament. Hear this from Romans 15. It says, now I want to make clear to you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold to the message I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, For I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. So what do we mean when we say gospel? In this passage, Paul is saying that the gospel of Jesus is of primary importance. It's the very thing that we stand on The gospel of Jesus. But also notice that he says that Christ died for our sins according to Scripture. He was buried and raised according to Scripture. So I want to propose to you this. This is the gospel of Jesus. That Jesus is Israel's long-awaited Messiah. And in him all the promises of God are fulfilled. So he died for our sins as Isaiah said in Isaiah 53. He was crucified, like David said in Psalm 23. All that he did is fulfilling what the Scripture said about him. And we'll come back to this idea in a bit when we look at uh, Gabriel's message to Mary. But I want to continue now looking through the passage. Um, As we come back to the passage, Zechariah wonders to Gabriel how his message could be true. I love Gabriel's response. Let's read it. <laughs> and the angel answered him, "I am Gabriel." <laughs> I wish we just stop there. Uh, I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you, and to bring you this good news. It's like he's saying, "How can you believe it? Like I'm an angel." <laughs> And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. So Zechariah will be mute until John's birth. And then he he comes out of the temple and the people are are waiting for him. He's taking a bit long. And he should have come out and pronounced the priestly blessing over him. We uh, say this sometimes in our liturgy, in our benediction, we'll say it today. The Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance to you and give you peace. And they're expecting this, you know, what we do here. It'd be like if we got to the end of the service and I was just like. And he can't speak, so he's just gesturing to them. And they'd probably like. And then he goes home. <laughs> All right, so let's keep reading. After, those day, after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, thus the Lord has done for me in my days when he looked upon me, to take away my reproach among the people. So the, the common belief at the time was that if a woman was barren, it was because of some sin, some curse, some error on her part. It reflected poorly upon the woman. And Elizabeth felt this. She felt looked down upon. She felt the reproach of others. So to become pregnant is to have her reproach removed. And so there are two things that we can notice about this. First is that the people who thought her barrenness was the result of sin or error were wrong. I mean, the Bible tells us that she was blameless and righteous. And yet she suffers. She suffers the... Disappointment of barrenness, and she suffers the reproach of others. In John 9, Jesus tells us that we should not assume that sickness or suffering is caused by our sin, personal sin. Read this as he passed by, Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned that this man or his parents that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was, not this ma- it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And then Jesus uh, spat in some mud, rubbed it in his eyes, and healed the man. So we do know that sin is the result of sin in the world. The world is fallen, and in a sinful and broken state, and there is sickness because of that. There is disappointment because of that, and there is barrenness. But Jesus also tells us that the rain falls and the sun shines on the just and the unjust. So when we suffer, for whatever reason, we can rightly lament that sin has wrought sickness and suffering in our world. But we should not make a kind of universal statement that sickness and suffering Sorry, before I say that, but so as much as we lament that, it does not translate to this idea that if there is sickness or disappointment or setback, that we can point to a personal sin that has caused it. At the same time, we shouldn't make a a kind of universal statement that sickness and suffering doesn't come from sin. It is possible that, and, and even likely, that sin in your life will lead to pain of all kinds. And so as we suffer, it can expose our idols, or selfishness, and it is good that we would allow suffering to drive us to repentance and to faith. So as we think about how this applies to us in our lives, we know that all of us will suffer. I can tell you something about you. You will suffer disappointment and loss. For some of us, in this church, there, that suffering is because of uh, barrenness or, or male infertility, the, the inability to have children. This, comf- this passage should comfort you. That, that setback, that disappointment is not the result of a, of, a, of a sin in your life, just as with the blind man. And also, God can be glorified through your situation. Because I think about the families in our church who have brought children into their home through adoption. So this situation that begins with suffering and disappointment becomes a wonderful display of God's own love for us, for His children. It's also a comfort because Zechariah and Elizabeth serve the Lord faithfully despite their situation. So we will all suffer. We will be sick and lose loved ones to death. So we aren't told... How Elizabeth suffered, we aren't told the sort of ignorant or mean comments that she would have endured over the years or the nights that she cried herself to sleep, but we are told that she was righteous and blameless. So it's only after she conceives that we hear her joy that she's had her reproach taken away. We see that both Zachariah and Elizabeth serve God faithfully despite their disappointments. The angel tells Zechariah, your prayers have been answered. They had prayed, for who knows how long, for a child. So whether we have children or are unable to have children, we will all experience disappointments and setbacks and sufferings, and these should not be excuses to justify our sin. What I want to have you consider is that if Zachariah and Elizabeth had never had John, what would the rest of their lives have looked like? I mean, so there's every indication that they would have continued faithfully to serve the Lord. Disappointed as they, they were. Their obedience was not based on getting what they wanted, but on God's word to which they were faithful. We'll see more about Elizabeth next week, but um, for now, we'll sort of wrap up thinking about Zachariah and Elizabeth, and we'll move on. The rest of the passage has to do with Mary. So let's read it. In the, six months, in the sixth month And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So we see that the same angel, Gabriel, is sent to tell very similar news to Mary, So a couple things should stand out to us right away. First, we see that Joseph, Mary's betrothed, is of the house of David. This fulfills the prophecy that the Messiah will be a descendant of David. See this a few places in the Old Testament. 2 Samuel 7 and and Isaiah 11. Isaiah 11 is where we get this passage that a, a, a sprout from the root of Jesse will come up. Jesse, of course, is David's. Father, and a quick plug for the Jesse Tree devotion. <laughs> um, we will have those books for you um, in the back. And I would encourage you, if you have children, please take one. If you don't have children, um, you know, I don't know if we have enough for everybody, but it's online. I've grown in my understanding of Scripture reading uh, children's books. They can so wonderfully tie together uh, major themes in Scripture and um, I think our, our Jesse Tree book is very good. I do want to say, because of a supply chain issue, the, um, the posters and stickers will be here next week. Um, supply chain issue, by the way, is my 2021 way of saying uh, I messed up the timing. And, uh, <laughs> but you're all used to hearing supply chain issue at this point, so I'll just go with that. Uh, but it is a wonderful resource to think about how all Scripture is pointing us and leading us to Christ. Please consider uh, using that. So that's the first thing, is that Jesus is of the line of David through Joseph. Um, I did have a professor, by the way, who debated me about that, that, that because he wasn't his earthly father, he, it doesn't count or something. But the Bible's content to say Joseph is from the house of David. Secondly, we see that Mary is a virgin. And again, this fulfills prophecy. The prophet Isaiah uh, in 7.14 wrote... Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. So, I want to be clear about this. When the Bible says that a virgin will give birth, it is the clear and plain sense of the word virgin. Mary had not known a man. You know what I mean? So some Bible scholars would argue that, that virgin could mean uh, something like young woman. and doesn't necessarily mean a woman who hadn't had sex. And uh, some others would say that betrothment was basically as good as marriage and consummation would have been normal during a period of betrothment. But the context makes it really clear. The Bible interprets itself that the meaning of this word is that, that Mary had not had sex with a man. So all Christians from the beginning have believed that of a, a woman a virgin woman who had never had sex conceived and had a baby by the intervention of the holy spirit it's there in the apostles creed the earliest creed that is called an ecumenical creed because it unites all true christians it says i believe in jesus christ his only son our lord who was conceived by the holy spirit and born of the virgin mary As we move on in verse 32, Luke writes that he will be called the Son of the Most High. This fulfills again another Old Testament prophecy. 2 Samuel 7 says, I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. And then finally, as we keep reading, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. So I want to pick, pick up a theme that we started earlier. What happens when we miss that the gospel is, as Paul says, according to Scripture? What happens when we unhitch the Old Testament from the New, as some have suggested? And so the simple answer is that we lose the gospel. Our Christ loses its Messiah. Those are the same words. But if we take the Messiah out of the Christ, then the result is often that we make the Gospel about us. We make the Gospel about getting our souls saved, and we miss the political and economic meaning of Gospel. So we would say, Jesus saves our souls. Isn't that really nice? But then if a Christian starts talking about paying fair wages we're likely to hear, uh, well, let's not get political. We should leave that up to the, econo- the, the economists. But this is not so for a Jew who's waiting for the Messiah. And we see it right there in Malachi 3. He tells us what will happen when Messiah comes. And one of those things is that he will judge those who don't pay fair wages. He will be swift, the Bible says, against those who oppress immigrants and widows, and orphans. So if we take Messiah out of the Christ, we'll be happy to know that we're going to go to heaven. But we might get frustrated if someone starts talking about people's private sexual behavior. Like, hang on, hang on now, let's just stick to the gospel. But it's right here in Malachi that he will judge the adulterer. So Jesus is the king who comes in the line of David, who will reign forever, who will judge the nations, and who will trample on his enemies. Malachi also says that he will judge those who swear falsely. So this isn't about pointing the finger at anyone. We were all rebels against God. We have all broken his law. It is by grace that we have been saved, not by works. None of us can boast. And still, Jesus comes to judge. He has all authority to judge the nations. And those who oppress workers and widows and sojourners and orphans will be judged. The gospel is, at its very core, a political message. Herod is sitting on the throne. He thinks he's the king of the Jews. But Gabriel comes with this royal birth announcement. I assume that Mary had to feel somewhere underneath maybe her bewilderment and her joy that this announcement also meant conflict and difficulty. Just as with David being anointed king while Saul's on the throne, there can't be two kings. It's true of us today too. There can't be two kings. Either you will serve one and Hate the other, or vice versa. So, Mary, like Zechariah, questions the angel's announcement. He sa- Mary says to the angel, How will this be since I'm a virgin? But, Ge- but Gabriel doesn't respond like he did with Zechariah. He doesn't make her mute, he just answers her question. Interesting. Why does he respond one way to Zechariah and another way to Mary? We aren't told that. It does seem perhaps that Zachariah is asking a question about how he can trust the message while Mary is asking how it will happen. And those are different. One is disbelief and one is curiosity, something like that. We're not really given a clear answer, but we do know that God is free to treat each person how he wants. Regardless of why the responses are different, we get his answer The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So here, at the conception of Jesus, the incarnation of the Holy God, we have the eternal Trinity. The Holy Spirit comes upon her, the power of the Most High, the Father, overshadowing... And the child, Jesus, is conceived. There's so much depth and wonder here. We're just on the surface. The word overshadows is the same as the Greek Old Testament word for God's presence coming into the temple. We see all throughout Scripture the Spirit hovering at significant moments of creation. Over the waters of the abyss at creation, the Spirit hovers As tongues of fire at the birth of the church, the Spirit hovers. Over Jesus at his baptism, the Spirit comes down like a dove, hovering over Christ. And here, over the formless void of Mary's womb, the Spirit hovers. The angel goes on, he says, And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. That's the end of the passage. I want to end with two points of maybe application or uh, encouragement. The first point is that we can trust the Bible. Um... Brothers and sisters, can I I just get an amen? We can trust the Bible. Thank you. So this is a message uh, for you today, Christians, and also if you're here today and you do not believe in Christ, this is a message for you. So we've seen just in our passage today that David, Isaiah, and Malachi all wrote about these things that would happen hundreds of years before they did. Now, there are all kinds of foolish ways that people try to get around this fact, and we don't have time to to refute them now, but if you are not a Christian, I want to challenge you to, to ask how you would explain that the Old Testament writers told of a Messiah who would come in just this way and be born in just this place, in just these conditions. And the unity of Scripture, from start to finish, is this incredible testimony of its validity, the way that Luke is so masterfully able to weave together the Old Testament to show that Jesus is fulfilling all of these things. And I would encourage you to consider that even more than that, it tells the truth about the human condition in a way that we just can't escape. We can't get around it. It pierces our hearts. And I, I know, as I say this, that our passage today features angels. And virgins giving birth. And I want to call you to remember that Luke has said that he wants to give an accurate account. He has interviewed eyewitnesses. And those eyewitnesses said, I saw an angel who told me this message. The eyewitnesses said, A virgin gave birth to Jesus. Luke isn't sort of embellishing to make a better, more fanciful story. He wants to be accurate. And this is true today. All around the world, people have experiences with the spiritual reality, which is a part of our reality. People have encounters with angels and healing and speaking languages that they don't know. But eyewitness accounts don't do us any good if we're prone to disbelief. We'll justify or explain it away. So, Christian, do we believe that the Spirit can hover over the watery abyss and separate the dry land from the water? If we believe that, then why can we not also believe that the Spirit would hover over the womb of a virgin and cause her to be pregnant with the Son of God? My prayer is that we would believe in angels. And not just so that we would believe the right thing, but it is practical. I want you to see this wonderful story from 2 Kings. um, To sort of set up the story, Elijah has been causing trouble, um, sort of thwarting the uh, enemy's plans. Um, And they're going to basically surround Elijah. They're going to go capture him or kill him. Elijah's servant uh, is is where we pick up the story. It says, When the servant of the man of God, that's Elijah, Rose early in the morning and went out. Behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. They're surrounded, right? It's hopeless. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And then Elijah said, Elisha said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. You guys thinking you're nuts, right? <laughs> Then Elijah prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elijah. May that encourage us today that no matter what we face in our lives or as Christians in this world, we should always know that those who are with us are greater than those who are against us because we have angel Armies, chariots of fire on our side. I don't have this in my notes, but and he prays that they would all go blind, and they do, and it's really funny. He uh, leads them. Uh, he basically lets them go, and they don't. They leave him alone for a while. So the first point is that we can trust the scripture, believe in angels. The second point, as we study scripture, it should be our greatest desire to reenact the Bible study that we heard about last week in Luke 24. We should be longing to know what Jesus told His disciples as He showed them how everything in the Law and the Prophets was about Him. My point is that Jesus is Israel's Messiah. And all that He did to fulfill those promises is written in the Old Testament. We should be searching the Scriptures Searching the Old Testament and not to revive the law, which doesn't have the power to save us. But to understand what Jesus filled up, what he fulfilled. What does it mean to us that Messiah has come? May we search the scriptures to widen our vision of what the good news of the gospel is. So when... When Jesus came to John to be baptized, John, when he sees him, says, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then we fast forward in John's life a a, a while, and we see that he begins to doubt. Things aren't quite, even though this great man of God, full of the Spirit, is looking around him and saying, I'm not so sure anymore. And so we hear this from Luke 7. It says and John calling two of his disciples to him sent them to the Lord saying Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another And when the man had come to him they said John the Baptist has sent us to you saying are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits and on many and on many who were blind he bestowed sight and he answered them Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, Leopards are cleansed. lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news to preach to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So brothers and sisters in Christ, hear this. This is good news. Jesus is Israel's Messiah. He is the world's true king. That means He is the Lamb of God who takes away our sins. That we can be made right with God. We can spend eternity dwelling with Him and we are not condemned in our sin. Amen? And He is the King who rules the nations from His throne of justice and righteousness. He will trample His enemies. And one day, all of us, every knee, will bow before His throne. On that day, sin and error will be completely eradicated. All sins, those that I hate and those that I hide or try to diminish or excuse away, He will judge them all. And so praise God for the cross of Jesus, which is the place of my redemption and the place of Jesus' victory over His enemies and all the powers of darkness. And so as we come to conclusion, we see that the stage is set for a big conflict. Herod thinks he is the king. And after Herod, many more pretenders will follow him. But there can only be one king. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this wonderful passage that shows us how your coming fulfills all these promises that were made over centuries. From the very beginning, when Adam and Eve sinned, you were ready with a promise that one would come from the seed of woman to crush the snake, that he would bruise your heel, but you would crush his head. And we can follow the Bible with all, through all these promises to Abraham that you would make his family great and that kings would come from him and that all of the world would be blessed through him. God, the prophet Isaiah tells us so much about what it will mean when when Messiah comes. God, we've seen in Malachi that one would come before to prepare the way. God, I do pray that you would turn our hearts to you. As much as we needed John to prepare the way for Jesus, we are longing for and waiting for you to come again. I pray that you would prepare our hearts As we study your word, may we have a bigger and wider vision of gospel and what it means that you've come, what it means that you've taken away the sins of the world and that you will finally enact justice, that you are the righteous one. Lord, increase our vision of your glory. Forgive us for the ways that we've wanted to privatize or diminish what gospel means. Expose our idols, Lord. And ultimately, we do know that you are coming with justice. When you return, that you will crush your enemies. The Bible tells us that death will be the final enemy to be destroyed. That as much as sin spread throughout the earth like a curse under which the whole earth labors, we will see it be eradicated as you return, bringing your renewed and new creation May we increase our longing for that day. God, let us be honest that we all have sins that we cling to that we don't want to get rid of. Forgive us for wanting to look to the sins of others and 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 highlight those and diminish our own. May we long for the day when the sin in our own heart and the the, the way it keeps a little root would be pulled out completely. When we see your glory and we are made like you. Come and come quickly, Lord Jesus. Finally, we see that, Jesus, you are the world's true king. That all authority that is legitimate on earth is just a a small representation and it is under your ultimate authority that Rome only has the authority that's given to it by God. The United States has only the authority that's given to it by God. And our ultimate allegiance is to King Jesus. Forgive us for trusting in princes and in other powers for our sense of meaning or security. And forgive us for wanting to sit on the throne of our own lives. Jesus, may you be our only and true king that orders everything else that we know we are your servants, that we are completely dependent on you for our peace, for our identity, for our meaning. May everything else just fall away. I pray as we continue in all that we do as we come to the table, as we continue in worship and as we fellowship together, may we be people who are shaped by the fact that you are our Messiah may any pretending or pretense come down among us because you are the Christ who announces your coming to shepherds, who is incarnated in a, Jewish, a young Jewish girl who has no, nothing special that would draw her to you except that she found favor with you. May that good news shape all that we do and may we truly love each other May we be citizens of heaven, sons and daughters of God. We long for your kingdom to come, Lord. Help us taste it. Help us taste it in, in small bites now. And as we come to the table, may we taste the food of your kingdom. Thank you, Lord. I pray all these things in your name.